For October 16th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 485. We're the grandpas in the vampire movie. This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together. Uh, it gives us a great sense of comfort uh, to come together and to talk over whatever we've been watching, listening to, thinking about over the past week. I'm Matt Rather, and I am joined by Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. And Mr. Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hello, Matthew. Now, what we've been chewing over the past week what we've all been thinking about and what's been front and center i would argue rightfully so in the media is a little upsetting it's the the uh revelations of a long-standing pattern of sexual harassment and assault uh by a major hollywood um mogul uh you know in some ways kind of the last the last of the the moguls and um I, while I am heartened by the courage of the people who are coming forward and telling their stories, my, you know, I, I got to confess, my soul is a little crushed by the, the hideousness of um, the, the things that are coming out. And when you consider it not as a, an isolated incident, but as something that is really a pattern of a pattern of behavior that is not confined to one person, but cuts across uh, pro- the, the entire entertainment business. And in fact, most industries, and in fact, most of our culture, um, it, it's a little bit, it's a little bit hard to, uh, to not have a heavy heart about it. Um, but I don't think, the world needs three dudes talking about this, uh, talking about this, the particulars of this issue, um, for a variety of reasons that, that, you know, are, are good and proper, but you know, there are, there are things about our culture that this, this highlights, uh, popular and, and otherwise popular culture and otherwise. And one of the things, um, one of the questions uh, that has come up over and over in the media is how could this remain a secret for so long? As so many people knew so much. Uh, how could this not be more public? How could this be allowed to uh, allowed to continue? Now, there there are an, a number of uncomfortable things about asking something like that because you know it's inappropriate to uh, to put the onus of like writing wrongs on the people who are the victims of the wrongs. Uh, that's not their job. Um, but the uh, you know the 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 larger the larger atmosphere of secrecy and especially secrecy about something everybody knows uh about or everybody in a certain cadre you know uh, in a certain set knows about um is is a cultural phenomenon that is really uh i i i hesitate to say interesting because that word has a positive has a positive valence but can be pro- productively examined um i think uh you know, Pete, what, what do you think about the, the aspect of sort of secrecy or silence, um, you know, in, in pop culture specifically? I mean, I can think of a lot of stories that uh, revolve around information that revolve around information not coming out. Uh, and and um, and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. But but is it a, do you feel like there's there's meat here for analysis? I think so. When I was thinking about how to even address this topic, again, as you said, three dudes talking about this stuff directly, not what the internet needs right now, uh, but how we can address this topic, it made me think about this phenomenon of you know that something is true, and, and, and the world around you seems to be broadly ignorant of it, and the way that you understand the world around you is that it's supposed to disseminate things that people know are true. There are various sorts of ways in which the modern world is supposed to spread the word about things that people find out, especially if they're dangerous. So if you think about and this, and this manifests in the pop culture in a whole bunch of ways, not the least of which being the uh, much maligned, it could kill your children segments on the weekly local news stations and on 
around the clock all over the internet and all other forms of news. This idea that something like, oh, there's a contaminant in your printer paper and it could kill your children, they'll surface that and they'll circulate that. But there's there's certain things that they won't talk about. And this experience of having this kind of information, there's a lot made of the the weight and the power of the authority to silence this kind of information. But I think the thing that interests me most right now is the stories that we tell about people who know something that the world doesn't want to hear and that is very threatening to them personally, but that the world is just blind to or deaf to for one reason or another. And and this takes me back to one of the most scared times I've ever been, which uh, had to do with the 1986 film Invaders from Mars. Have you ever seen this? It's a remake of a 1953 film. I think I've talked about it on Overthinking It before, but it was like a really foundational moment for me in my relationship with movies. And I think I saw like a commercial for it. It was going to air on TV. It was a commercial for this and a commercial for the British horror film Life Force, which both scared the crap out of me and inspired most of my evening nightmares. But Invaders from Mars is a story about a kid who finds out that the adults in his life who are supposed to – and, of course, it's, it's a male kid. You know, it's, it's because, of course, these stories are much more comfortable when they're told from a male perspective sometimes. Uh, it's cause, well, they're again, just – yeah, because they're, they're, they're just average, right? It's just the average experience when you talk about it from a male point of view. I mean it's just – it's so interesting as I'm even talking about all these intermediations that it's aliens. Mm-hmm. It's a child, right? There's all of these ways that you can transpose away from the – the quote-unquote actual problem uh, and, and, and symbolically represent it in, in ways that, that, you know, the aliens are not the actual problem, but the aliens are also not not the actual problem. They're representative. <laughs> they're symbolic. And, and the kid looks around and all of his authority figures, and this is, of course, by the way, the bread and butter of how Stephen King does all his work, right, is that there's some sort of, there's an it that gets transposed, that gets symbolized, that gets transferred, and it's a lot of horror stuff. But when I think about Invaders from Mars, I think about a little kid who, like his teacher, his parents, his babysitter, they're being taken over by aliens in a way that he doesn't entirely understand. And and what really strikes me in remembering that is really the sense of just palpable terror. Like like not even the kind of terror you get from watching an entertainment, but just real life like this is – I'm scared enough now that it is going to change what rooms I walk into, what places I go. It's going to change my behavior in like a fundamental way. Uh, and, I, and I think that for me, this is like one of the closer ways that I can come to try to understand what it's like to – know a truth that you know is true and that's threatening to you and that people who are supposed to help you won't help you. I mean, again, there are real-life examples I could bring up, but it's almost like the the sort of slant of the fictionalization of it uh, makes it easier to sort of come right out of the gates and talk about it when there's nobody else there to talk about it with you, I suppose. And I kind of wonder whether you guys have had similar sorts of experience and whether our readers have had similar sorts of experience where there's like a metaphorical or symbolic expression of this kind of feeling that that empowers you to sort of think about it and frame your way of dealing with it uh, when other people aren't there to mirror back to you that you're not crazy in, in like real life. Right. Sure. Uh, yeah. I'm just, I'm just curious what you think about this. Cause, cause that's really where my brain is going a, a lot with this right now is like, man, to have to sit on that and deal with that for so long, especially when people were joking about it, but nobody, nobody was, you know, reacting to the jokes in a way that was commensurate with what they were saying uh, is it just seems like psychologically the the culture that's the kind of wound that the culture is going to like grow around and not just erase it's going to be visible and it's going to pop out a whole bunch of places yeah. when we have these kinds of psychic wounds in our population I mean, we, we've, well, uh, a, number, a number of directions to go. It strikes yeah. me that the kind of story that you're talking about, like the kids, you know, the, the kids, family, teachers, friends, loved ones, the, the, you know, close people who are responsible for the emotional well-being of the kids being, uh, you know, replaced by a malevolent force. Um, it strikes me that that's a story that's about a kid, but it's not for a kid, right? Like, it's sort of for the child and every adult, 
uh, you know, and that's the, 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 but like sort of actually, actually confronting that as a real possibility, um, is completely inappropriate for a child. <laughs> like, it, <laughs> well, you know, yes. the normal thing is like, you, you, you have to make children feel safe and, and loved, you know, like you, you provide structure and boundaries. Sometimes even discipline is part of that, right? Like you, 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 uh, make them feel like, you know, the world has, has, uh, the world is looking out for them a little bit, especially in those, those early, um, you know, those, those early, uh, experiences we talked about, um, was it Erickson's stages of, uh, developmental stages? And the first one is between like, uh, safety and not safety, you know, is the world, uh, a fundamentally, uh, is a, the world a place that's fundamentally out to get me or that I can't rely on, or is the world a, a place that, that, um, that I can rely on. I mean, we had a, a bunch of behind the scenes talks at overthinking it about scary movies, some of which were published on the site recently. Uh, why do people in the article, why do people like scary movies? Uh, I didn't get to participate in that in the, uh, the think tank, but I do not like scary movies for, <laughs> you know, um, for, for this reason. Uh, I, I recall once, um, in college, the the rather corpulent Harold Bloom uh, saying in class, "Don't ever tell a child." Just apropos of nothing, I forget what exactly. What this was a, a Shakespeare seminar, one play a week, and so like I forget what play we were talking about, or whether this was just you know just a by the by from uh, from Papa Bear, uh, as he sometimes called himself. Um, he just, uh, he said, uh, never tell a young child, I'll eat you up because you're so much bigger than they are. Uh, and he or she will believe you, you know? And that's, uh, that, that strikes me as like being akin to the inappropriateness of, of, um, you know, exposing you to that sort of thing. Like I saw uh, young Sherlock Holmes on Betamax when I was, uh, when I was young, which I think was something I, Steven Spielberg was involved in it, I think. Um, and it was a, you know, it was a little bit like, uh, what if Sherlock Holmes was a teenager, you know? Um, the, he was skateboarding all over. He grinded on everything on the mountain. <laughs> I think it was a Victorian teenager, but like, <laughs> no, he was, yeah. What, uh, or exactly. But there was, this sort of like he uh, he discovered and kind of intervened intrepidly in this um, uh, Egyptian death cult thing where they were live they were mummifying a live person and like gonna bury them alive or something like this and I I was this was terrifying to me you know I don't do well with small spaces most of the time you know I don't I don't like uh, being hemmed in and like the you know the idea of uh, you know this this the idea of the kind of live, buried alive thing that they were that they were doing was was um, was awful so i i you know i don't know i don't like the uh i i and i it just sort of fueled it like that it fueled nightmares for uh uh for years and years and that that sort of stuff but like but um uh, and and that was also a case, right? Like it wasn't something that he knew to be true, but it was something that he like detected to be true. The kind of like malevolent, yeah. the malevolent, uh, the malevolent conspiracy. The thing that I think is interesting, though, uh, is non-malevolent conspiracy. And in in this connection, I'd say that the canonical story is the emperor's new clothes, right? Where everybody says that the emperor's clothes are beautiful, except the one kid who you know is not socialized to go along who says that the emperor is naked you know and that's that's a like i'm i'm interested in the psychology of the people who look at the naked emperor and see clothes before um, before the kid does it, because like, before the kid like uh, uh, spills the beans, right? Like with you know, and and a child shall lead them. When the when the child like tells them, the whisper goes through the cloud crowd, and it's like the emperor has no clothes. The emperor has no clothes. You know, um, and and it's a story about more than that, because like it's also a story about the the uh, the craftsmen fooling the emperor and how it's it's a story about luxury goods about you know generally. But um, uh, I'm I'm interested in the psychology of the people before they uh, get wise from the kid, mm-hmm. right? Because at at that moment, 
you know, uh, I actually believe that I saw five lights, right? They're, they're looking at the naked emperor and they see, uh, they see the beautiful suit with the cape and the train being carried, the invisible train being carried by the attendants who lift up the, the train behind him as he traipses naked through the street, uh, with all the, you know, the, the, the pomp of a, a royal, a royal parade, right? And that, that like, um, I have more to say about it, but like maybe I'll leave it there for the moment. That that is the the psychologically interesting moment for me in 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 that story. Not yes to be the the kid who realizes the malevolent conspiracy or the non malevolent conspiracy, but to, to be an unwitting member of the conspiracy is a situation that I think we find ourselves in more often than it might be comfortable to realize um and it it might do to it might do to kind of address uh truth claims with some humility um once you realize that you're prone to that sort of thing yeah what it reminds me of also in a sort of orthogonal way have you read save the cat the screenwriting book that's very commercial i i feel I, i feel like i have but i haven't I think that's how everybody feels about it. I mean, I really enjoyed it when I read it the first time. It's a book about writing movies that's very much based on how to write a movie that is going to be commercially successful and going to sell. And as such, it's drawn a lot of criticism, uh, as well as I think it has a fair amount to say that's that's interesting. Um, one of the points that's made in Save the Cat, if I recall correctly, is – if you want to tell a story in a movie about people in a relationship in like their 40s or 50s, tell the story but make it about people in their 20s because that's what people are going to want to watch, right? And there's this idea that you trans – and of course, I don't know how much this is at all relevant. But it's an interesting idea that by transposing the story from the particular group that you want to talk about to a different group of people, you pull in the audience in a way that you wouldn't. And I also wonder if there's something sort of – there are going to be structural changes in how the story gets told based on who you're telling it about. And the reason I bring this up is that when I think about these stories about these emperor news, these emperors' new clothes stories, these body snatcher stories, even stuff up to the level of like gremlins, where it's like there's something terrible happening in the town, and it's like yeah, whatever, right? Nobody really believes you. Uh, although I might be misremembering Gremlins versus Gremlins Two versus Critters versus all of these other ones, um, is that these roles are put into young people and there's this idea that civilization at large doesn't listen to young people and that this is a a point about kind of adolescence and about individuation and the feelings that rise when you become an adolescent, you want to individuate, you run up against the idea that nobody wants to take you seriously, uh, but eventually you overcome it and you, and you pass through the arch and you become an adult well, what if we consider that story to not really be about a child, but to be a transposed example of an adult experience? Then all of a sudden, the barrier that the kid runs up against, right, where nobody listens to them, is no longer comfortably explained by this developmental coming-of-age story, and instead does seem to say something about everybody and how they all act together. Now, again, I feel like I'm using a lot of words to describe something that could be described very simply, but I don't want to sell it short. And I also sort of feel like by, again, stepping away from it and making it a little strange, it might be easier to suss out a little bit. Go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. Yeah, we're we're all talking about Stranger Things, right? (laughs) I mean, let's just bring it together to something that is very much uh, in, in the pop culture. The other thing that uh, the more positive thing that's in the pop culture uh, uh, atmosphere right now, uh, rather than the Harvey Weinstein thing, is Stranger Things. Um, season two about to come up in a couple of weeks uh, from when we were recording this and is, you know, obviously a 2007, 2016, 2017 take on 1980s phenomenon of children knowing that there is something horribly wrong, but adults not listening to them. Right. Um, is there something to be said about that kind of story kind of coming back? Uh, and being told from a nostalgia point of view rather than the the contemporary examples like Invaders from Mars in the 80s or any of the number of Stephen King things uh, or Spielberg things, Spielberg things from the time period? I mean, we can all understand why women would feel that way about powerful men. 
the way that children feel about powerful federal research organizations that abduct their friends. Uh, right? Like it's the relationship is pretty much the same. Um, but uh, sorry, that that's a little too dark. That's 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 like stepping over the line that I don't really want to step over too much in this podcast. Uh, as sincere as it is, um, like you can understand on a surface level, you know, why certain sorts of power dynamics that are in the culture would promote a connection with this sort of thing. But like it's also seems kind of pervasive across all sorts of groups right now too. It's interesting to look at things like uh, the Harvey Weinstein uh, – um, I don't even know what to call them Ch- – scandal, charges, realizations, recognitions, peripatia, the Weinstein peripatia, and look at it against the context of, say, like conspiracy theory stuff, you know, whereas there's a, conspiracy theory stuff is hugely popular right now and, and like really, really widespread, and this idea of like – the thing about the Martians in the Mars movie is that there it's obvious that there's a way to verify it eventually. There, there's a way to verify that it's true eventually. The thing about Stranger Things, right, is eventually you go into the research center and you, you have Eleven and, and you can go through her and you can kind of figure out what's really there. Um, and, and I wonder if the culture – there's a there's a sort of coalition in the culture that's sort of built around this idea and this feeling, but it tends to – uh, interrelate regardless of whether the thing that's being uh, that's being represented metaphorically by aliens or monsters is verifiable or not, falsifiable or not, right? Plausible or not. And again, well, who are we to say if we're plausible if we're the ones hanging out with the aliens? I mean, that again becomes in a kind of interesting thing, interesting thing to say. Uh, I mean, I don't know, um, Matt. Do you have any any feelings about all this? Because this idea of like certainty, knowing, not knowing, we've sort of become used to in recent years being again bombarded with constant re- constant mirroring back to us of all sorts of stuff that happens like very very fast. And one of the reasons why nostalgic stories about the '80s might be popular now is that back in the '80s you didn't get these things mirrored back to you very very fast. There was no there were no cell phones, right? Like there were big clunky car phones sometimes. Uh, and, but at the same time, those world. were slow. Information was slow on those because they were so heavy. You had to like yeah, exactly. lift. You had to lift the thing to your ear, which could take forty-five <laughs> minutes. You know, <laughs> that was hard. But, but just this idea that you have a viewpoint, you have an experience, and you don't have an immediate place to go to have that mirrored back to you, other than your close friends. And, and the this, this sort of bifurcation of experience with regards to mirroring going on one way, like, well, there's only certain people I trust versus there are literally millions of people who are willing to talk to me about anything that I'm interested in at any moment and, and give me their heartfelt opinion about it. Yeah. It's an interesting bifurcation. Right. Well, that's – I mean – right. Exactly. I mean it strikes me that in these in these stories, in these sort of like uh, E.T., Stranger Things, um, you know, things like this, that, that – there's actually a double conspiracy, right? Because there's a there's an adult world, there's a malevolent conspiracy, and then there's a benevolent conspiracy. The benevolent conspiracy. I would even say a benign conspiracy rather than a benevolent one. But <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I think I think benevolent in the sense okay. that it's it's the conspiracy of the kids who know the truth together, right? Oh. Who can't? Who are working to right the wrong, but like that the knowledge is shared, and it's I think it's important that there be a gang, right? Like there's Elliot, he's the main guy. He's the you know the protagonist of the story, but that that he be surrounded by the gang, you know, um, it's it's less important. Stranger Things does maybe a little better uh, by introducing what one girl to the to the mix, but um, you know uh, that like this this thing right and and the the. Um, uh, that so that like it's it's different from your Mars uh, invaders from Mars story wh- right where the the thing the terrifying thing the psychologically horrifying thing is the isolation right is the right. the um, the sense of no recourse and the sense of of sort of no one no one to turn to and you know in 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 the news without talking i guess i mean we're we're all like i we don't want to i mean there it's funny there are things that you want to say and there are things that you don't want to say but like one of one of the features of stories like the ones that have emerged uh over the last week or so um is that uh is the aspect of isolation right is the aspect of of 
um, sort of shutting uh, shutting the victims of criminal behavior uh, along, d- 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 shutting them up by themselves, <laughs> kind of in their own uh, mummification, and and making it impossible to kind of reach out and get the kind of uh, support that a person needs after suffering something like that, right? And and that like um, you know that. That the that sense right that that sense that uh, you are alone is not um, is not great right like it's 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 all well and good to be nostalgic for a time when the kind of the hyper connectedness of of uh, you know technologically enabled social media right what was not constantly pushing into our was not constantly pushing into our lives and there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of negatives to that. There, there are positives, obviously, but there, there are a lot of negatives to that in terms of like uh, what it does to your attention span, what it does to your kind of self-conception, what it does to your sense of competitiveness and comparing yourself against other people. There was actually a, in today's New York Times magazine, there is a story about just a, a, an epidemic of anxiety disorders among teenagers Um and uh, a lot of it is connected. Uh, a lot of it is connected to, you know, technologically uh, mediated interactions in in various ways. Um, that that like. Uh, you know, it, it's all well and good to sort of be nostalgic for the time for the time before that, but you're not actually. It's funny. It's it's like something that 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 uh, it's something that that you have said on this podcast, Pete, and that you said on our podcast uh, about pain and suffering. <laughs> that cheery uh, that cheery hour as well, which is that like a lot of these things don't they they don't signify in a straightforward way. They're they're about kids, but they're not actually about the experience of kids or like uh, what did, what did I. I I talked about the the Buddhist parable of the second arrow, and you're like, well, it's not actually about getting shot with an arrow. Uh, (laughs) Right. The second arrow is more metaphorical than the first arrow. The first arrow could actually be uh, uh, the first arrow could actually be an arrow because the point is that pain and suffering don't necessarily need to coincide. Pain is a sensation, and suffering is a mental disposition. But um, but uh, yeah, it's and you know, I don't know. I've like uh, I feel like this is a task of uh, this is a task of individuation, especially if you grew up in in a difficult family, right? Like that. Wh- where do you where do you turn, right, to have your experience validated? Mm. Um, and and so the gang, I think, is important. Like it's important that that we have a gang, right? Yeah. Like, and that's a that's not um, it's not uh, a resource that everybody has and everybody can draw on. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, you know, you because you talked about. I love this idea of the malevolent conspiracy and the benevolent conspiracy, but I, I do want to I want to stick to my guns and, and mention this what I would describe as the benign conspiracy, and I mean benign more like a tumor in the sense of <laughs> of something that is not necessarily uh, aggressively fatally harmful, but that may or may not need to be removed. And and I feel and I feel like I can think of so many stories that work this way, where there's the malevolent conspiracy, which in Stranger Things is the conspiracy of the government to the, break yeah, through the, the walls. The, the, the Department of Energy. Yeah. And then the benevolent conspiracy is the conspiracy of the children uh, to mirror back to each other the legitimacy of their experience, and then to sort of settle upon a course of action. What can they possibly do? How can they exercise their power forward to whatever sort of degree it exists? And then there's the benign conspiracy, which is the parents in these stories, huh. but which which might serve as a lot of other uh, features. And the role of the benign conspiracy is supposed to be to protect the children because they're not supposed to have to deal with all of the things that are out there and terrible in the world. Um, you know, it's, it's perhaps useful that a lot of these – one of the other things about stories about the 80s is that the kids are always surrounded by sort of comfortable pseudo-luxury objects like fancy bikes and nice jackets and like Nintendos. And this idea that a that a home has been created for them, even if they're not well off, uh, in this sort of the the families that get uh, Spielberged tend to have a lot of resources for taking care of the kid and making the kid a sort of special space. I'm thinking also of the dream space that exists at the beginning of my favorite movie, Searching for Bobby Fischer, uh, and also a little bit in Guardians of the Galaxy indulges in this a little bit. And this idea that the parent creates a space for the child that's supposed to protect the child from the things that happen in the outside world 
and yeah. going and, back and to the, ET, the the closet is a really yes, good example. Yes, the closet in ET is a great example. Animals, yeah. And 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 a lot of the action of the story is whether the benign conspiracy gets enlisted on behalf of the malevolent conspiracy or on behalf of the bene- benevolent conspiracy. Right. Whether the good guys or the bad guys are better able to make use of this infrastructure around them that's meant to keep basically keep people who are vulnerable from being hurt. Uh, and I think I think I think sort of one is the big factor in this. I, one one movie that comes to mind, and I really hate that I have to spoil it, but there's no way to talk about it without spoiling it. Have you guys seen The Lost Boys? Oh, it's been a while. Uh, no, I haven't. Because oh. vampire movies are are all about this stuff in various ways, whether they're about AIDS or about sex in general or about foreignness versus domesticness. Vampire movies are all about like there's something out there and they don't believe you, but I believe you. Um, and uh, and in Lost Boys, it's a, it's an 80s vampire movie where the vampires are this sort of gang of rough kids with Billy Idol haircuts uh, with Kiefer Sutherland in it, which is hilarious. And the, and there's a – the kids believe that the mom's new boyfriend is a vampire. And there's this sense that – and what I would describe that as is that the benign conspiracy has aligned with the malevolent conspiracy. Like the uh, the, the f- parental figures in the story, which are – which under normal circumstances would still inhibit the children's ability to take any sort of action and that would – which would you know necessarily try to interfere between any sort of interaction between the malevolent conspiracy and the benevolent conspiracy, right? Like ideally the parents just protect the kids from this stuff and they never hear about it because um, you know, you know, we all know the terrible things happen in the world and you do there is something to be said for protecting the innocence of children because you want to give you want to provide for some sort of measure of happiness and you want to provide for development and and you know that these things can be damaging and also you just want other people to not suffer the ways that you did and and it's about love and it's about generosity of spirit and things like that um but there's this fear in the lost boys that the that the sphere of the parents has been taken over by the vampires which drives them into uh, a deeper collaboration with each other and again there's a whole bunch of other twists and turns that happen but the big deus ex machina at the end is that the crazy drunk grandfather comes out and just blows all the vampires away and reveals like oh the one thing i always hated about this town is all the damn vampires (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's amazing and you absolutely have see this movie because it's it's still a good line even with all that in mind um you think that the crazy grandpa is just totally out of touch but the whole time the grandpa has been sort of the long hand of the benign conspiracy that's been actually tasked with protecting the children and is just doing kind of a bad job of it and I, i just love how that movie shows both sides of it where on one hand there's the real dark terror of the people who are supposed to be on my side aren't on my side and versus the sort of like fantasy glee of like the people who are supposed to be on my side are on my side which may not necessarily be the way that these sort of things work out in real life for the better, but it's interesting to see it like work both ways. And I think it's, it can and does work both ways. Uh, it's as it, if yeah. in the Terminator, uh, at, like at the very end in the plant, rather than Sarah Connor crushing the Terminator, like the grizzled old chief of police who somehow escaped um, the massacre at the police station comes out and blows the Terminator away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If it's like the cop that the Terminator took the face from at the beginning. No, even better. Maybe oh, like yeah. Dr. Silberman. Who, yeah. instead of being a horrible psychologist, comes along and saves the day. And yeah. Like, yeah, I know the Terminator's a real well, right. It's So it, the question is, are you going to Randy Quaid, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> that's the question. That's totally the question. You know, and like, yeah, that's – it's interesting. The, the benign – it's the potentially benign yeah. uh, conspiracy, right? Because it can be – I think the word conscripted is good that you used. It can be conscripted um, – Either way. I mean, there's another this this actually is a rat hole that kind of takes us off of our main tack here. But like, I think that there there may be something here. Um, A lot of this has to do with kind of idealization of of children. Right. And like the the um, the the big sin in movies where it's not malevolent, it's not conscripted by the malevolent conspiracy. The big sin of the benign conspiracy of the parents uh, is to be out of touch, and also I think to over idealize the children, right? And the 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 um, the best of of these films, right? Like a, a child confronting a crazy world, um, is uh, the best of them give the kids. R- 
detailed inner lives, kind of rich psychologies with good parts and bad parts as, you know, as real kids have and not sort of overly, you know, not sort of overly idealized uh, Victorian children who have never had an aggressive thought in their life or who have never... Um, you know, done done anything like uh, you know done done anything to hurt anybody, or had never said anything wrong, or done anything wrong, and or who are just sweet angels, all all of them, um, right? Like uh, the and and I think that that to a certain extent, the the best benevolent conspiracies are the ones that. That I mean, it's actually when you, when you're a parent, when you have an actual duty of care, it's such a. I mean, the hard thing is like when to intervene, right? Like mm-hmm. not all the time, not helicopter parenting, uh, but not never, not neglectful. Um, Parenting, actually, I mean, it's fu- it's funny. Pete, you use the term the benign conspiracy. That reminds me of a a parenting term that was current around the time that my parents were reading parenting books, uh, or maybe it was a, a, a social science term or something like that. But um, that that very often the best the best way to treat children was with benign neglect. Yeah, right. And, I remember that. Too. And, that <laughs> and that this is this is in the absence of trauma, in the absence of of any sort of special awful situation, in the absence of you know a serious emotional needs. Right? Like if the kid's playing outside and the kid's happy, right? Like don't interfere. Right. You know, the best thing yeah. you can do is just benign neglect in in uh, in yeah. a situation like that. And and so like. Um, you know, I don't know. I I, I think that a lot of the uh, it's funny because these things get the, uh, the metaphors start working at at cross purposes to the extent well, that, yeah. that these are stories about childhood. Uh, the benign neglect is a good thing uh, to the extent that these are stories about the the value of. Um, the value of uh, a peer group to, as you say, mirror back to you uh, the the truth and reliability of your own experience um, in the face of of something upsetting or traumatic, right? Then benign neglect is not the right uh, no. is not the right tag to take, and and there is a more kind of positive uh, duty of care that the yeah. that the parents is in the benign conspiracy have. And I would even also say that if you're transposing an adulthood story into a child story or vice versa in the way that you're thinking about it, if you're infantilizing somebody after a fashion, then the function of this – maybe I would even say is it – I need to take a biopsy because it might be the benign conspiracy. It might be the malignant conspiracy as opposed to the benevolent or the malevolent conspiracy um, is, is that – the people who presume to have this authority to protect somebody from the outside world, uh, this sort of double-faced idea that on one hand I'm trying to help you, and on the other hand uh, I'm trying to suppress you, uh, it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion that the people who are trying to suppress you are also trying to help you if you're talking about adults rather than children. <laughs> right? I mean, like, certainly everybody hopes – I would think, unless unless you have real reason to despair, I would think that everyone would hope that at some point some other adult out there that they don't know would do something good to help them rather than always against them. But, you know, uh, that's a very low bar to jump over. But this idea of, like, the attitude that I would hope that a child, and again, even even I have to break it down because a lot of children don't get this experience. As you've said from Erickson's, Erickson's psychology gives us a framework to approach this. There are children who develop without the sense that adults are out to help them at all. And, you know, and again, it's like, what what a well, lucky person I am that I can say that with shock, right? Uh, but that there are there are situations where the same sort of tripartite structure seems to exist between somebody trying to hurt you, somebody trying to intermediate your relationship with the outside world, and then you and your friends, where that middle piece has like a really wide variety of different kinds of roles, depending upon what you're kind of transposing into that job. I mean, like, you know, Get Out is probably a recent example where it's like um, – very clearly being transposed from a very specific sort of of mindset and a very specific sort of cultural framework where it's able to draw on genre convention from other horror movies to set expectations and fulfill those expectations uh, in ways that kind of make the story resonate, but in which you would not really be able to say it works exactly the same as like Stranger Things because they're adults and not children and it's a race uh, a race race charged problem uh, and not strictly one that's about kind of like 
lack of individuation, it's infantilization, and it's people kind of trying to control you. Hey, again, this all gets over the line into like really spinning out and talking about really specific stuff uh, where we could just go down the rabbit hole all day. But you see what I mean, right? It's like the story framework is kind of bigger in the culture than, than any of the sort of individual cases for which it's being recruited. But you can recruit it to tell all these different kinds of stories and to understand these different kinds of stories. And I'm just, I am marveling a little bit about how going from talking about it in the context of the cultural phenomenon to talking about the actual thing carries with it this like this anxiety, um, which again might be moral cowardice, but might also just be the way that these things work and why these stories exist in the first place. Uh, is to give us a way of of somehow transmuting and, and communicating, even when there's these really powerful cultural pressures not to talk. Now, again, you brought that up at the beginning, Matt. It's like, what is it like to be the person who looks at the emperor and sees clothes? Yeah, and it's it's hard to say because you don't know that that's what's happening to you, right? I mean, I think we can all say we've all been there. Hold on a second. Just, I mean, if you're looking for, for trying to step into those shoes, let me just take you back to a year uh, in the late '90s when at least two out of three of us were highly very concerned about baseball and marveling at the fact that Mark McGuire (laughs) and Sammy Sosa were hitting so many home runs. Spectacular! How could they possibly be doing it? The Emperor is such amazing, muscly clothes. You mean back during the steroid era, which is a thing that happened in the past and is not yes. happening in the present? Turns out the, <laughs> the malevolent conspiracy is that we're take, they were taking steroids. <laughs> uh, we, we, I meant to say we don't have to go that far to find them. I, mean, I could also point to the 38 percent of the people who think that um, the uh, the emperor has an amazing plan to drain the swamp. And run the United States government <laughs> in a very clean way. Uh, okay, so those are just a couple of very, very low-hanging fruit examples. I don't know if they're that helpful to this well, discourse but, but or not, but I'm putting them out there. Even to even to go back to it, who didn't like Sammy Sosa? Like seriously, like Mark McGuire, if he was disliked, it was probably for a certain kind of Bluto-ish arrogance, right? He was a Popeye villain, and uh, and, and but who didn't like Sammy Sosa? I, I mean, I certainly love Sammy Sosa. I don't know about you guys. I thought I, I still do the Sammy Sosa, like kiss my fingertips, pat my chest, kiss my fingertips, point up to heaven, right? Every once in a while, uh, because I feel like it's a wonderful gesture and it has a certain appropriate uses. Um, but it's it's like uh, I, I, it's, I I know what you're saying, and that okay. So what you're saying is that we can identify a place where, in retrospect, we know that at the time we were looking at an emperor with no clothes, and we can then speak to what that experience was like then but what i was saying is that well when it was then we didn't know or at least we weren't cognizant of it, even if we knew it and um, and also i i mean i would say that there were probably i you know i'm maybe this is overly optimistic maybe this is just too rose-colored of me but i feel like the truth will out right like i feel like reality uh um has a well-known liberal bias. No, uh, reality has a... Uh, <laughs> I feel like uh, reality has a way of, of asserting itself. Um, you know, one of, one of the things, one of the influential things I ever learned about... Uh, I learned about acting when I was training is uh, in one of Stanislavski's books, um, one of the, the lines of one of his... Well, they're not his books, right? Like, they were collected by other people, and there's actually a long and kind of arduous publication history but, and history of manuscripts, but the... Um, uh, they're not his books anymore. I bought it for nine ninety five. Now it's my book. Um... <laughs> Yes, in that sense as well. They are no <laughs> longer his books. Uh, he says, nature's laws are binding on all, and woe to those who break them. And he, and he ta- he's talking about the kind of the, the obligation that artists have to kind of do work that is within the bounds of human experience, right? That, like, that sort of rings true. Not that it's real or even quote-unquote realistic, but that, that sort of rings true. That is in accordance with, uh, with natural laws. And I feel like there, there is, you know, that you create tension. You create like, uh, you, you load up the spring when you act not in accordance with natural laws or when you try to deny reality um because reality want that that spring wants to to spring it wants to un you know unburden itself of its load and it's um the uh the thing the thing that you need in order to keep it packed right in order to keep reality down uh the thing that you need is like some sort of powerful force um exerting pressure 
on it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just that we didn't know because we didn't have the tools to know that that you know Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were you know the the steroid era in baseball. There has to be which happened in the past and is no longer happening no, in the present. No, that's not. I mean, the, I, by athletes, the way, that's a nice outfit you've got on, Matt. <laughs> All oh, the jewels. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, <laughs> it was uh, sewn with me. I mean, it cost me an arm and a leg, but the 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 artisans <laughs> who made it said that they were the best. And who am I to argue? Um, yeah. The uh, yeah no uh, uh, athletes and and um, especially entertainers don't use performance enhancing uh, you know supplements. Um, you there has to be there has to be uh, pressure. There has to be a reason. So we didn't want to know so, somehow, and whether that's because. Uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, I probably don't need to catalog what some of them might be. You can it can be left as an exercise for the reader. But the the, the they're always. I mean, the one of the tricky things about this is there very often can be an element of complicity, right? Like because wouldn't it be better if the bad thing weren't true? Right? Wouldn't it be more reassuring? Wouldn't life be easier to live? And it's not, it doesn't take, it, it, it's not hard to follow why someone would want to live that way, right? Yeah. Why someone would want to, why there would be just incredible, even unconscious resistance to admitting the bad thing. Uh, even if you have all the tools to kind of put the pieces together and it's sort of Sherlock Holmes like understand it, um, because it's just it's it's you don't want to uh, you just don't you don't want to engage with it. And this I think actually kind of circles back to the, the thing about idealization, parental idealization of children, and not treating children like uh, full people with complex psychologies, not adult psychologies, but complex and you know rich psychologies, right? Like, wouldn't it be better? If wouldn't it be easier anyway? Wouldn't it feel better? I guess is what I mean. Uh, if the children were actually that simple, right? Mm. Like, wouldn't it be better if they were living this ideal? Wouldn't and for me, for me, uh, you know, uh, for my feelings, wouldn't it be better if all of these children that I have to take care of, you know, as the mom in ET, as I sit here in my cat costume on on Halloween alone, um, wouldn't it be better if they were never ever inaugurated in? to the realm of adult disappointment as I am uh, sitting here in my cat costume, wouldn't it be better if they were never inaugurated into the realm of um, adult, adult sexuality and the, the, uh, all the kind of the minefield that comes with that? Um, would, wouldn't it be better? And, and like the answer is yes, of course it would be better, or at least it would be easier for me. At least it would, you know, uh, as a hypothetical parent in this scenario, it would feel better. Um, but that's, you know, that's not the world. I, I've I've sort of like idly now and now now I know I, people with kids um, have wondered about the effect of ubiquitous pornography on the develop on you know the development of children and now I know people people with kids who are sort of finding it on the internet and I, I have a right. friend out here in L A actually not a college friend of ours not someone that you and Mark know but she to- she was telling me about her 11 year old uh, who either through a friend or through just the internet through spam through through some stray pop-up on the thing, uh, discovered porn, right? And, you know, she sort of had to set some limits and, like, take the porn away. And the kid was really mad because he liked he liked his porn, you know? And that's a level of... Uh, and, you know, it's not... It's a, it's a, a pre prepubescent child it's not adult sexuality right like but it's like strong sensation or it's compelling for some reason right and like wouldn't it be better if all these kids in 2017 you know were not uh you know sort of traumatized by by discovering this thing that kind of blows the lid off of their effective capacity right like the problem with the problem with kids and stuff like that is not necessarily a moral one though you may have moral problems with it uh it's it's that their wiring is not they don't have a circuit that can withstand that level of affect and it just blows yeah. it, you know it it it, it, it traumatizes them um yeah. and like wouldn't it be better if that if that weren't the case you know if uh if the kids and stranger things didn't have weren't in mortal peril didn't have to feel that kind of fear if uh if a child didn't have to you know be the one to say that the emperor has no clothes of course it would be better it's also it's also not true well i mean here's there's two things that come to mind 
One is the the realization that I think people start needing to come to is that there's been a changing in the guard as to who comprises the benign conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> like, like we're the grandpas in the vampire movie, right? Like there's nobody else who's going to do it for us. So if you need to solve this problem, we need to figure out how to do it. And, uh, and it's like, there's nobody else. There's not like this invisible cadre of tons of people who are really chomping at the bit to really fix everything. And are this sort of huge source of power that we're not privy to. We've, we've made the step up from, uh, and we're from Ascanius to Aeneas, right? In that little triad, uh, which again, I would want to make more gender neutral, but there's the uh, the famous sculptural triad and li- liter- literary triad of like Aeneas, the the guy, the city founder, carrying his aged father and leading his young son. And we've we've spent a lot of time in our culture in the experience of being the kid, and now we are moving into this situation of being the adult and realizing that like. Oh, it's it's on us now, and and we are not prepared for it at all. <laughs> and so we're telling all these stories to ourselves about how children deal with these sorts of things, and are kind of like, oh well, you know, I mean, none of us have children as of yet, as far as I, as far as any of us know, uh, as far as we know. <laughs> um, but our friends do, right? And and certainly, like our contemporaries do, and certainly we might. Uh, and, and I don't need to speak for them, but. I don't think that it's like some sort of magical, uh, you know, some sort of you're visited by Aslan in the middle of the night and given a magical sword that's going to help you protect your kid from the world, right? Like, it's like, it's not going to be anybody else. It's going to be us. And that's kind of the charge uh, when, when people are saying, like, believe believe women and people are saying like you gotta like what is this idea of whole sort of like being an ally and all these sorts of things that, that get put out there and i don't mean to diminish them i just don't want to go into them in too much detail uh because that's a whole other a whole other topic part of that is about like recognizing your role among the parents in the vampire town right where it's like other people are fighting the vampires and maybe you can't see the vampires but like, don't be a dick about stopping oh God, the vampire I, hunters. You know what, Pete? I pay my I pay my taxes. You know, and someone should be fighting the vampires for me. We have vampire freeloaders who get vampire defense without paying their fair share, without pulling their weight. You know, what's this Buffy girl doing out after dark anyway? With the- so it's like no, and so sorry, and so the other thing is, is basically like this is these stories can sort of like where do we fit well, actually, in? Actually, this is uh, right. Like uh, Buffy was about like uh, the, the the vampires were very often uh, directly metaphors for like aggressive sexuality for like adolescent yep. male sexuality, right? Uh, in all its in all its you know spectacular grossness, um, that the uh, you know the the hideous deformed bodies of the the vampires were the 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 hideous deformed uh, and continually deforming bodies of, of adolescent boys. And like, you know, thinking of it the way it, you know, thinking of it the way, uh, the Buffy did like the only, the only solution to it was to stake them in the heart until they exploded. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Dorothy's got to drop a house on the witch. That's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other uh, thing I wanted to bring yo, up, yo, yo, is yo, I don't wanted- make me drop a house on a witch. <laughs> um, the other point i want to bring up is i want to draw a a contrast between the invaders from mars and the vampire kinds of situations that we've been talking about in those stories and the matrix specifically the matrix and everything influenced by the matrix because while they're both about ideas and they're both tied into notions of conspiracy i think they give us two interesting ways of thinking about conspiracy and thinking about uh, how a person who feels like they might have they might know the truth relates to people who see the emperor's clothes in one case the the person who can see the stranger things kid knows that something is is wrong because they very clearly and obviously see it through their own experience. And the thing that's being illegitimized is their experience and perspective that they bring to the table as characters saying like, Hey, you know, I saw a big crazy monster and it's like, no, I don't believe you because you're just a child versus this idea of somebody who thinks that they might be one of the people who is looking at the emperor with clothes on and sort of seeks to drill down into some sort of more enlightened state of consciousness wherein they can see the naked emperor. And and it's interesting because like that's not what happens in yeah, the story a, of the emperor's new right, clothes. It's a difference between deductive and inductive reasoning, right? 
Right, right, right. Where I, that's a great way of putting it. Um, I guess what, like, uh, I have my moments. The uh, the the deductive reasoning is the is the bad is the Matrix version that you're talking about, right? Like, I I have come to the uh, I I have a hypothesis more or less, or I have I have come to the conclusion for a variety of reasons that yeah. uh, that no clothes having uh, might be a feature of the universe, and so I'm going to achieve the level of enlightenment I need to see it. And the inductive way is to say, oh look. There's a guy's nakedness, <laughs> and that uh, that um, you know you you proceed from you proceed from specific examples uh, yeah. in order to draw conclusions from them. And I guess what I would add is don't underestimate the prevalence of the latter. <laughs> don't, as somebody who is seeking to be deductive, and if tell me if I have it wrong, don't, as somebody who seeks to be deductive, assume that nobody can be inductive. Or is it the other way around? Mm. As Neo from the Matrix, oh, yeah. don't assume that that's, there are no right. Buffies, right? Like, don't assume there are no Buffy the Vampire Slayers as Neo from the Matrix. Uh, that there are no people who are already dealing with these problems and, and see them from the first-person perspective all the time and could tell you all about them if you were just to listen. And again, then this idea to sort of mystify these people as sort of Morpheuses rather than as Stranger Things kids, it's just a very different vibe in terms of how you treat this information. And I almost wonder if mystifying it, mystifying this sort of experience is part of the problem or at least part of the distinction uh that that i'm trying to draw here and part of how you might want to start to sort of classifying different schemes of conspiracy the idea of how mystified is the experience of the person giving you an inductive take on what's going on yeah uh, you know, as like, um, because if it's just like, yeah, we all tell jokes about casting couches. Everybody jokes that Hollywood producers are sexual predators. It's in like half of the movies from the 1980s. Why are we all so shocked that this is a real thing? Right. Is like very different from like the world is run by lizard people and, and nobody knows. Right. Like uh, it, it's it's very different. If, if like Sinead O'Connor goes up and tears up a picture of the Pope and says the Pope is covering up child abuse versus Sinead O'Connor holding up a picture of the Pope and is like, the Pope has a giant Zeppelin that he uses to watch all your homes at night, uh, right? Like, like these are, and again, maybe the Pope has a giant Zeppelin, but I want to hear it from the Buffies, not from the Neos, right? Like, uh, I want to hear the people who are dealing with the airspace that the Zeppelin takes up in an unsafe manner, and the way that the Zeppelin, like, personally inconveniences them. That's what immediately interests me right now, anyway. Well, right, and that's um, like, I mean, I think the kind of the gender of Buffy and Neo is is, is no accident, a little bit, given, yeah. given the current, you know, given the current situation, right? Like, and it, it to me, it comes from like it comes down again to kind of a humility a humility thing even you know uh even fellow my fellow right thinking progressives need i think need a little humility that like the elaborate system that that you have concocted um is uh you know is probably not adequate to explain the the lived experience of your fellow people and so you should probably default to uh, don't be a parent. Don't be a bad. Don't be a bad. Uh, you know, benign conspirator. You know, who who idealizes or who doesn't um, accept the the sort of fullness of the people around you. Like, be yeah. be a good uh, a benign conspirator who uh, lets the lets the people be the people in all their messy glory. I mean, the two the two jokes, <laughs> the two like cultural jokes I wanted to make after your comparison to the Matrix was like, well, come on, Pete, what's wrong with the red pill? You know what's wrong with taking the red pill, um, and the the other one uh, is probably not safe for work. But the the uh, you know the the right like what I would say in a moment is what I would say really really quickly is as somebody who has at least investigated that area of of the world at the, certain the, points of the of internet. Curiosity. Yeah. Is that you? Well, yeah. Is that like the problem with it? Is that what you're responding to is your own pain, and you need to come to terms with your own pain, uh, and recognize what's causing it, right? Um, not nece- it's not necessarily that uh, it's it's that you need to also look for the explanations that you can come up with yourself, rather than necessarily seeking out the explanations that everybody else can give to you for what's happening to you. If what concerns you most is your own direct experience, but it's hard to give yourself permission to do that. Anyway, sorry. So, so you're saying so you're saying don't don't have a a star trek into darkness solution to a star trek the final frontier problem 
All I'm right. saying is that we're all feeling like we're having a Star Trek Beyond experience. <laughs> <laughs> and that I'm saying that what we really want to have so, so basically is that we think we're having a Star Trek Discovery experience, but we're really having a Star Trek Beyond experience. But we're pretending that we're having a the Orville experience in order to not have to do anything about the Star Trek Beyond situation. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry, please state the nature of your medical emergency. <laughs> uh, by the way, Voyager is uh, still on Netflix. Totally watch it. It's great. <laughs> hey, Best uh, start guys, speaking, is Voyager. <laughs> speaking of prioritizing deductive over inductive reasoning, I'm coming around to the idea that sexism might be a little problem in our society. You think? Well, I'm coming around to the idea. Okay, well, let us know. <laughs> no, yeah, let me. I need to think about it some you'll be more. Riding six white horses when you come. When you come, you'll be riding six white horses because you'll be there to save the day. You'll have finally figured it out. Matt, uh, I have a pair of glasses that you could put on that oh. will show the world as it truly is. <laughs> All right. So, guys, but first, but first we need to wrestle in an alley for about fifteen minutes before you put the glasses on. So, okay, so I think it's time for us to move to our main topic. Mark, how's the new Will and Grace? <laughs> <laughs> to a level of scrutiny. <laughs> Probably doesn't deserve. As public allies of Harvey Firestein, we do have to voice that everything we've ever learned about him shows to be him to be a friend to the weak and an ally of the vulnerable, and that Harvey Firestein uh, did not deserve uh, any of the heat that he took for it, but also that he seems to have not been injured by it, so he's probably fine. So, but I feel like if we didn't say anything, we would be failing our audience. So I'll say that, like unlike an Independence Day, Harvey Firestein will will emerge from this firestorm unscathed. Oh, he better call his lawyer. Eh, forget his lawyer. Better call his mother.